I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of The Lives of Stonehenge, this short podcast series from the London Review of Books with me, Rosemary Hill. Over the four episodes, we're looking at what people have thought about Stonehenge for the past few hundred years, why it's come to matter so much in so many different ways in the story of this country. In the first two episodes, we were in the 17th and 18th centuries with the architects, Inigo Jones and John Wood, who were inspired by Stonehenge to transform British town planning, and with the antiquaries, John Aubrey, William Stukeley, who pioneered modern methods of archaeology as they tried to work out what Stonehenge is and why it's there. Well, today we're moving towards the 19th century and have to imagine ourselves again roaming across Salisbury Plain, this time with the eyes and the mind of a romantic, to see how, for the likes of Wordsworth, Blake, Turner and others, Stonehenge became a gloomy, menacing, richly psychological presence, a scene lit by intense personal and political drama against the background of the French Revolution and the Revolutionary Wars, crowded more than ever with mysterious and often violent druids. Joining me in this uncanny landscape, I'm delighted to say, is Seamus Perry, Professor of English at Oxford, who regular LRB podcast listeners will know well for his contributions with Mark Ford to the Close Reading series. Well, welcome, Seamus, and uh, tell us, what what was it that Stonehenge did to the romantic imagination? Well, thank you. Um, The way you've characterised the uh, antiquarian writers of the 18th century I suppose, um, summarises exactly the opposite of what the uh, Romantic poets uh, and, and other writers saw in, uh, in Stonehenge and in standing stone circles more generally. They're absolutely not interested in speculating uh, in a historical way about the origins of these um, structures. Uh, they become important for Wordsworth and for Blake and for other people who we might touch on as incidents within um, the, the story of an individual consciousness, within the individual subjective life. So there's a big switch in a way between the things you were talking about in your last podcast, which were attempts, however cranky they may seem now, to establish the objective truth about Stonehenge. A big shift away from that to Stonehenge becoming uh, a subjective um, uh, phenomenon um, within the life of an individual poet. Yes, well of course the poets and the painters, we mustn't forget Turner and Constable came too, um, didn't have to worry so much about the facts. Constable went to a lecture on Stonehenge where inevitably there were some theories and he just came away and said, well, nobody knows really. They didn't mind that. What they did mind, because we've now got to the end of the 18th century where the picturesque has has developed out of this sort of sense of views into, Nicholas Pepsner calls it psychoanalytic, a really developed philosophical theory of perception. So people are trying to relate their interior experience to their exterior experience, the qualities of light, the qualities of landscape, the sort of things that Stukeley was beginning to move towards are becoming part of 
well, not exactly everyday experience, but part of the acknowledged experience. And I think, I don't know if you agree, but I think it's Wordsworth who really kind of brings all this to bear, first and last, it's a whole series of revisitings of Stonehenge. Yes. I mean, I think the one historical or, or pseudo-historical fact that, that does linger and is important for these representations of Stonehenge is their association with Druids and with ancient sacrifice and with um, a, a kind of um, primordial um, a pre-Christian a sort of religion which involves um, violence and, uh, and, and death. And I think that's absolutely hanging in a kind of rather gothic way in the background of lots of the uh, responses to Stonehenge made by uh, Romantic period writers. And it's certainly there in, in Wordsworth's response. It's very important that the, that the monument has that kind of penumbra of, of uh, macabre um, association for Wordsworth's whole thought process to get going. Yes, and they're not... I mean, there are these... Of course, all the images of the Druids are conflicting and the poets feel free to pick and choose what they want. But Eilert Sams, who wrote one of the stupidest books ever on Stonehenge, which is completely wrong at every single point, but has the image of the Wicker Man, which we still haven't ever got out of mm. our heads. That was important to Wordsworth. And also he's got the good priests and the bad priests image of Druids, because the Druids by this stage can be almost anything. And they come, to, I mean, I suppose you could say they first come together in poetry with Chatterton, the doomed teenage poet whose poems were both forgeries because they, he was pretending they were medieval, but after their forgery was discovered, they were still a huge source, like Ossian, of uh, imaginative inspiration. And the Druids were a bit the same. It had long ago ceased to matter whether they actually existed or not or what they were. There's also, isn't there, an important connection which arises for reasons that I don't fully understand between the Druids and the figure of the bard, the kind of the ancient inspired sort of prophetic poet figure who Thomas Gray writes about and, and Ossian, the great sort of semi, semi at least uh, fake poems of Ossian by Macpherson, creating a, a picture of, of a kind of in, inspired bardic solitary that is uh, um, something that Wordsworth and Blake especially are really you know, attracted to. Exactly. Well, he's sort of, I think that the, the joining figure is a man called Edward Williams, who became better known as Yolo Morganwick. Apologies to Welsh listeners for the pronunciation. But he reinvented him. He was very keen on this bardic, druidic tradition, which he mostly invented and first celebrated the solstice with a stone circle on Primrose Hill, actually. He was also, we must add, a really heavy and enthusiastic user of laudanum. Oh. So a lot of his um, ideas, if one can call them that, sprang basically from being very trippy. So by the time the romantics arrive, you've got all these resources, poetic, um, psychedelic mm. and intellectual to draw on. But Wordsworth's encounter on, on Salisbury Plain sort of starts with just very in a very banal way with an accident. Yes, that's right. So uh, this is back in 1793, and Wordsworth and a friend of his go for a, a walking tour, as Romantic poets did, a long and arduous one in the West Country. Uh, Wordsworth's horse plays up in some way, and the carriage that they're riding in is smashed. Then quite what happened is lost to history, but his friend seems to have taken the good horse and rode off into the distance. And We've left... all been on trips with friends like that. <laughs> and left his friend Wordsworth to make his way across the entire length of Salisbury Plain um, to go back, I suppose, to Dorset. 
so that's uh, that, that's the, as it were the real life event um, that's happening. And in much much um, uh, later on in, in the 1830s, Wordsworth remembers this um, remembers this incident in his life, and he describes it as a couple of days rambling about Salisbury Plain, which doesn't make it sound terribly traumatic or, or, or strenuous or, or or scary. But but actually, the poem he writes about this episode, which is initially called Salisbury Plain, and then it's later called Adventures on Salisbury Plain, actually does portray this experience as being really kind of seismic and and sublime and terrifying. And also deeply, well, can you say it's allegorical, it's symbolic, the the whole scene is laden with the significance of the background of the French Revolution, England, Britain at war with France, but also the whole of Europe, the beginnings of, you know, the nearest thing there'd been to a world war. And Wordsworth's own radical politics at this stage still? Yes. I mean, uh, we're talking about the Romantics responding to Stonehenge in, a, in an imaginative as, as opposed to a scholarly way. And of course, that's true. But that doesn't mean that politics is absent at all from the mix. And certainly this period of, of Wordsworth's life, he's at his, at his most intensely politicised, really. Unlike all the other English Romantic poets, Wordsworth has actually been in France. He's actually seen the revolution as a human event, not just as something reported in the newspapers or discussed in the pamphlet wars that are raging in England. He's been there in 1790 on a walking tour where he kind of in, kind of bumps into the revolution by mistake, really. But then he goes back in 1791 and two, uh, and there his motive for going is that there is this extraordinary, historically unprecedented thing happening in France that he is um, deeply committed to, deeply involved with. He has a relationship with um, a woman in the um, pro-revolutionary um, side of France. Um, he gets her pregnant. He's he's you know increasingly immersed in French life. He returns home in 1792 quite unwillingly. It's possible, just possible, this is the kind of thing that Wordsworth scholars have bitter arguments about in conferences, it's just possible he returned to France in 1793. And if he did, then he really was encountering the revolution as it's taking its most you know, desperate turns. And also, by 1793, he's an enemy alien. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because because uh, the war has been declared. Absolutely, because war has been declared. It was, it's just about possible still to be a moderate friend of liberty and still support the idea of France until 1793. But then in 1793, the king loses his head, war is declared, and there's a general sense that the revolution has spun out of control. That the revolution, in short, doesn't look like the 1688 glorious revolution anymore, which is what lots of Englishmen hoped that it would. It's looking more and more like the revolution of the 1640s, where you cut people's heads off and you hand over the nation to a republic of zealous nutcases. Yes, always a mistake. But also, of course, he's not... I mean, he's, sort of, he's caught almost literally, I suppose, on Stone, at Stonehenge between a rock and a hard place because the British government has, in response to the threat of invasion, become increasingly oppressive. Habeas corpus is suspended. People are being arrested for sedition, which is, and we'll come to William Blake later, who was arrested for sedition, which was a capital crime. And Wordsworth and his friends were at one point, I think they were, weren't they sort of picked up on suspicion of being possible spies? Uh, well, certainly Coleridge is, is kept, they keep uh, a, a close eye on Coleridge, certainly, yes. So he's he's trapped in this sense of um, almost a kind of claustrophobic sense of what is happening to society, because um, on the one in France, it's being overthrown, it's being destroyed, there's all this violence and bloodshed. 
And in Britain, things are not much better. And the encounter on Salisbury Plain with the, the woman and the orphan child, which comes in various versions of the poem, is a plea for peace, really, for saying that, you know, whatever your political position, when it comes down to it, when you have a revolution, when you have a war, it's the weak and the poor who suffer. Yes. So the human encounter um, in, in Wordsworth's poem is with um, a, a figure who he will go on to call the female vagrant. And, and she is uh, a victim of the system. I mean, that, that is her role in the, in the poem. She has her own voice. She tells her own story. And it's about a life that has been destroyed by war, by imperial war, but also by um, cruelty at home, by social injustice, by a nation that is simply heedless of the sick and the impoverished. Um, and her her tale, which forms the centerpiece of the poem, it's sort of bookended by Stonehenge, if you like, but the, the, center, the centerpiece of the poem is her tale. Uh, and it is meant to be exemplary. This is, this is Wordsworth offering us, as it were, the voice of contemporary England. So it's an extraordinary passage in the middle. But then, as you say, bookended by Stonehenge, with these lurid, dramatic very visual images with fire with and as i say he wants the he wants his druids both ways he wants the wicker man he wants the cruelty the sacrifice which this woman is is an example of the, of the way in which small people get crushed um by great events but also he has the wise priests with their rods he has um a vision of a more benign possibility and i think i don't know whether he has in mind because by now Everyone's, if they want to, absorbed all these theories about Stonehenge. And the, one of the theories about the name, that it came from hanging place because a medieval gallows is like a trilithon, whether he um, sees the guillotine in the trilithon. I mean, it's once you've had that thought, it's quite difficult to get rid mm, of. Yes, that's true. I, I think that, that becomes um, much more explicit maybe in, in Blake's treatment of the of the stones, but I think that sense of, of, of political violence is also behind Wordsworth's encounter. It's about verses 9 and 10 and 11 of the poem, where he stumbles by accident across an antique castle, as he puts it, spreading wide. And a voice comes to him, so he's a, it's an imaginary voice within his own mind. Oh, from that mountain pile, avert thy face, whate'er betide at this tremendous hour, to hell's most cursed sprites, the baleful place belongs, upbringing by their magic power. So, it's, as I say, it's an extremely gothic representation of, um, of, these, uh, of, of these ancient stones. And, and the, he hears the voice from under the ground, which immediately makes you think of Hamlet. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, a voice Clay. beyond the grave, absolutely. Um, and what the voice from beyond the grave uh, uh, tells Wordsworth about is precisely that druidic gruesome fantasy that that uh, that you were alluding to for oft at dead of night when dreadful fire reveals that powerful circles reddening stones mid priests and spectres grim and idols dire far heard the great flame utters human moans then all is hushed Again the desert groans, a dismal light its father's bounds illumes, while warrior spectres of gigantic bones, forth issuing from a thousand rifted tombs, wheel on their fiery steeds amid the infernal glooms. <laughs> it's good stuff, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Powerful stuff. Um, and, and emotion not yet recollected in tranquility, it would seem. But no, it, raw emotion, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely raw emotion. But it comes back in the prelude in a more well, a, a more digested, a more reflected, calmer form. 
But he goes on reverting, I think, to that whatever it was that happened to him, however much afterwards, and because by the time he goes back with his wife in the 1840s, he says what everybody says today. Oh, well, of course, it's all been spoiled. You know, when I first went there, Stonehenge was really marvellous. Um, and you could go in among the stones. People always say that. But I'm interested, actually, in what he's thinking about Stonehenge and its what it represents of humanity and human nature by the time he's digested it a bit, by the time we're getting to the prelude. I mean, what, what, what's, what's happening there? Well, I think there is an important shift um, from the, the poem of the mid-1790s and to his um, account of this same episode when he writes his great autobiographical poem. Um, the Prelude, uh, later to be called The Prelude, um, and, uh, which comes to its first sort of finalised form in about 1805, so it's about 10 years later. In the 1790s poem, uh, there's a direct uh, parallel made between the, the dreadful things that the Druids did at Stonehenge and contemporary English society. So the bit I read out a moment ago is, as it were, from the first of the bookends. And if you jump to the end of the poem, he portrays um, huge wickers paled with circling fire, no longer horrid shrieks and dying cries to ears of demon gods in peals aspire, to demon gods a human sacrifice. So we don't have that, but there's still people being sacrificed in, in our own terrible new, to use the word, terrors, that he uses, so obviously a very laden word with contemporary yes. French um, history going on. And then the very last glimpse we get of Stonehenge is in the very, very last lines of the poem, where Wordsworth is uh, assuming in this, in this verse um, the, the voice of, of radical reason, capital R reason. So he's beginning to sound like Tom Paine or Godwin or you know one of the one of the leading rationalist pro-revolutionary or at least revolutionary sympathetic writers of the day and saying, you know, we want to eradicate error. We want to eradicate everything that is irrational and all these bad superstitions that keep us in hock. But, he says, interestingly, once we've swept the earth um, of superstition's reign, there's one that we should keep, he says. He's, at the very last line of the poem, save that eternal pile which frowns on Sarum's plain. <laughs> so we've got to get rid of all the evidences of superstition, but let's hang on to Stonehenge. Um, so that implies an interesting movement in his mind, that there may be something about superstition or certain versions of superstition which might have a kind of imaginative value or significance. Yes, or simply a kind of monetary value, um, because he's come round to seeing it as the child of darkness, deep and unknown days. So it's, instead of it being this very busy, populated, rather kind of cinerama scene, it's recaptured what it has for most people still, um, that sense of an inward kind of mystery uh, that you're not going to they're not going to solve it. You're not going to find out. And to be reminded all the time that there are things you will never know um, yes, is quite I, useful. Mystery, I think. That, absolutely. Yes, I, I completely agree with you about that. And I think that's what he, when he comes back in the prelude to reimagine this experience that he's had, all these political, allegorical meanings are, 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 are shed. And it becomes very much um, about a, a psychological episode precisely uh, occupied with the sorts of things you've just been talking about, with a sense of mystery and the unknown, 
um, and you know the deeply enigmatic and the scary, absolutely. But the but the frightening and the, and the terror of it is no longer being given a political um, f- function. It's just a, um, a marker, really, of the extraordinary capacity of the human mind to in, to invent its own terms of experience. And that really brings us, I think, to Blake, for whom Stonehenge is. Well, even more complicated as things are generally for Blake um, and who in in his long poem, Jerusalem, um, illustrated poem written as he created those wonderful books of watercolours with all the poetry in written in and around um, the illustrations. Stonehenge is this very complicated symbol of so much. Um, And when we talked about how we were going to do this podcast, you very rashly said that you would explain it for us. So um, (laughs) go ahead, I'm all ears. Yes, well, so it it, it is a long poem, and Blake toiled over it for a a long, long time. Um, And it's full of um, the kind of visionary kind of obscurity and, and oddity and sheer idiosyncrasy that characterizes lots of Blake's stuff. In a way, what it is, it's a state of England poem. When, you know, later in the 19th century, someone like Dickens or Disraeli wants to write a state of England novel, they write a realist piece of fiction that actually portrays bad social conditions or, or various kinds of injustice or, or social ills of, of, of one kind or another. Well, Blake's mind doesn't work like that. Blake thinks in terms of his private mythology. That's always where he starts. So the, uh, Jerusalem is really, a, as I say, a, a vision of England. And England is called Albion in Blake's story. And Albion is at once a kind of a giant and also a god and also a metaphor for the people of of England. And what Albion should be doing is becoming Jerusalem. There's, so there's a strong kind of you know, dissenting Protestant kind of element in the poem that envisages the salvation of England as being the establishment of a new Jerusalem. Blake's theology is very, very cranky and odd, but within the terms of his own um, mythological dramatis personae, what Albion has to try and do is throw over the doleful influence of a kind of bad god who is um, presiding over England in the late 18th century. And this god is called by Blake Eurizen, and that's partly a pun on horizon, because a horizon is a line that kind of limits rather than lets things uh, enjoy their full kind of imaginative liberty. And it's also a pun. It's also an accusatory pun. It's Blake saying, your reason. He's pointing his finger at the 18th century and saying, this is where your cult of capital R reason has got us. This bad god, Eurizen, who is keeping Albion tied down in a state of kind of repression and, and a complete sort of creative sterility. Um, and the figure who's going to help Albion realize its destiny in a new Jerusalem, throwing off Eurozen and all the constraints and, and appalling rationalist delusions that Eurozen instills in us all, is a figure called Los, L-O-S, soul backwards. And that's a kind of mythical version of Blake himself. He's a, he's a kind of a poet figure who struggles and wrestles with, with all the forces of Eurozen and tyranny and, and suppression and repression of all kinds. And I should say for readers, if they go through all 100 pages of this fairly impenetrable work, it's good news in the end. <laughs> we do get to Jerusalem in the last pages and, you know, Lost pulls it off, I'm pleased to say. Yes, though also anyone who goes through it looking for the lines that we now call Jerusalem should be aware that that's in a poem called Milton. Yeah, that's absolutely that's just right. another level of confusion. But for Blake, I mean, it came. This came 
I mean, well, always with romantics, biography is useful and relevant. And for Blake, it came at a moment when his visions, because he'd had this period of visionary happy. He was very happy. I mean, some people get very upset if they start seeing things and hearing voices. But for Blake, this was wonderful. And he'd had a period of being cut off from his voices. They had returned. He'd also had this awful experience, though, of being arrested for sedition. So... He, like Wordsworth, was in a, a at a moment of crisis and excitement in his life. Um, and Stonehenge, the, the rocky shore of giant Albion, looms really, doesn't it? In in the poem, it's not it's not really comforting. He has questions about the Druids. He wonders whether they were proto Christians. He's obviously you can tell, um, especially if you're coming at it from the direction we're coming at it through these podcasts. You can see what Blake has read. He's very up to speed. He knows his his um, vision of Avebury has the sort of the serpent pattern in it that comes all from Stukeley. He's read everything. And then, of course, by the time it's been through Blake's mind and comes out the other side, it's really very different. Yes. I mean, I think, uh, um, like Wordsworth, um, he is quite keen on the political implications that you can draw from Stonehenge being a place of sacrifice, being a, a place where, you know, human lives are destroyed. Um, and he certainly picks up on that. I mean, his politics are much more, more odd and, and, and cranky than Wordsworth's because he thinks that all the kinds of social injustice and, and ruin that he sees in the streets of London um, are caused by an unjust government and a, a wretched foreign policy and all the wrong attitudes towards modern thought and all those sorts of things that Wordsworth might agree with. But for Blake, it's all absolutely caught up in this Eurozone story. And I mean, he's got one of the greatest conspiracy <laughs> theories of all English literature. Everything is part of the anti-art, the anti-imagination conspiracy. And that's, that's in its negative implication, that's what um, the stupendous building on the plain of Salisbury that he talks about in Plate 66 of his of his poem, that's what it stands for. It's the work of Eurozen. Mighty Eurozen is the architect, he says, um, of 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 Stonehenge. Well, he's like uh, well, like Stukeley in that, in that, and indeed like a lot of people uh, right up to the present who come to Stonehenge wanting a unified field theory. They want Stonehenge somehow to embody the complete key to the meaning of absolutely everything. Yeah. But also, I mean, one of the things I love about this poem, which I don't understand but I love going through it is his as you say every he says Jerusalem is in Oxford Street very close to where we're sitting now Um, (laughs) and he talks about the fields from Islington to Marybone to Primrose Hill because he knows that that's where Morgandry set up the first corset of bards and St John's Wood were builded over with pillars of gold and there Jerusalem's pillars stood and all these antiquaries who've been trying to get Stonehenge measurements to fit with the druidic cubit, which has involved a a lot of literal bending and stretching. But obviously, Blake, you know, doesn't matter to him about that. It is so. Her little ones ran on the fields, the Lamb of God among them seen, fair Jerusalem, his bride, among the little meadows green. It's one of the things I love about Blake, that he's very keen on little things, Mm. lambs, small streams. So the, the contrast between all of us, really, down here in our little world and this mighty force. And of course, the the person who's been behind every episode of this series so far, though never at the front, is Isaac Newton. And Newton, of course, comes back again powerfully as the enemy for Blake. 
Absolutely. I mean, Newton is um, Newton is to science what Locke is. John Locke is to philosophy. Um, they are absolute embodiments of the of the Eurozenic mindset in in Blake's in Blake's mythology. And the idea that you go to Stonehenge and you'd measure it, or you try to you know enumerate it, or you'd put numbers on the different stones so you can map it, that's just the work of Eurozen. And what an extraordinarily bad way of responding to Stonehenge, um, um, Blake would say. Um, you're trying to turn it into what Newton has turned the universe into, which is a vast machine that you can describe by mathematics. Well, that's not what the universe is really all about. In Blake's view, the universe is about the infinity that is the imagination and the whole state apparatus is designed to crush that by schools or by universities or by churches, I mean, or whatever it is. And, and Newton absolutely is at the heart of the, of the anti-arts conspiracy. Very unfair to Newton, it should be said. <laughs> well, like in Newton, Newton, as I say, he is just the, the force behind, as I say, every episode of this podcast so far. And I think Newton, who, of course, had his own very peculiar to us uh, numerological yes, that's what I mean. theories um, uh-huh. and so on. But Blake, I suppose by this date, Blake is simply using him as... And then there is that amazing image, which rather ambivalently has been turned into sculpture by Paolozzi and now sits outside the British Library mm. of Newton, the great measurer. Mm. Whereas, as you say, Blake, when he has those lines about blow on, blow, about uh, mock on, mock on, Voltaire, so mock on, mock on, it is all in vain. You throw the sand against the wind and the wind flows it back again. Um, I'm misquoting. But his, his complete confidence in this vision is what I think carries you through the poem and past these extraordinary fiery um, images of the really menacing trilithons, which, I mean, even in, in Blake's very beautiful watercolours, he makes it quite frightening. Yes, um, there's, there's, a, there's a fantastic and, uh, and, and deeply sort of mythologised, fant- fantastical version of, of a um, trilithon in one of the uh, plates of, of Jerusalem, on plate 70, if people want to go and look it up online, where it's, it's massively outsized, isn't it? It's looming over these three extremely vulnerable little people who are um, underneath its shadow. Um, and the analogy you made earlier on about, uh, about stones and, uh, and a kind of passing resemblance to a guillotine or to a scaffold or something like that is absolutely what Blake is drawing on in, in that image, isn't it? It, it, it's, it? Stonehenge is a kind of overshadowing, kind of f- sort of fascistic building that looks as if it's uh, you know all set out to crush the spirits of the people who are who are gathered beneath it yes i mean in terms of architecture it's brutalist it is, <laughs> rather it? than exactly. picturesque by the time it gets to blake and yet somehow it is embedded in this lyrical vision i mean it, it's pointless to say that blake's extraordinary but it is just just wonderful um, the yes. weaving together of so many strands. And he has the little lines about how Jerusalem is also in the pubs and it's in the bathing ponds on Hampstead Heath. And he uh, he associates Stonehenge with um, all kinds of uh, failings. So in awful pomp and gold, in all the precious unhewn stones of Eden, they built a stupendous building on the plain of Salisbury with chains of rocks round London stone, of reasonings, of unhewn demonstrations in labyrinthine arches. And then 
later on in that um, same passage, Loss, who's the kind of the poet figure within the poem, witnesses a kind of appalling sacrifice of what's called here the Daughters of Albion, which is to say the women of, of England, who are being destroyed by, as it were, the literal interpretation of this would be that they're being destroyed by the social conditions of, of contemporary Britain. But as it were, within Blake's mythical parallel universe, they're being sacrificed by um, hateful new versions of Druids at this, his own version of Stonehenge. The daughters of Albion, clothed in garments of needlework, strip them off from their shoulders and bosoms. They lay aside their garments. They sit naked upon the stone of trial. The knife of flint passes over the howling victims. His blood gushes and stains the fair side of the fair daughters of Albion. So it's gruesome yeah. stuff. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But thinking of women, which we haven't very much in this series so far, because there aren't very many, but another scene set at Stonehenge, much less well-known than Wordsworth and Blake, but written by somebody who really knew about the revolution in France, was comes in Fanny Burney's novel mm. The Wanderer, subtitled Female Difficulties, which really is putting it very mildly indeed. But Fanny Burney, who'd been in France, she'd married uh, Monsieur D'Arblay, so she'd lived in France under Napoleon's regime. She had no sentimental ideas about uh, what had happened and came back to England when the war was still on and wrote this book, The Wanderer, um, which in which she says at great length, more or less what Wordsworth says, that the, the revolution, the violence inherent in the revolution, the horrors that we've seen, don't think that they don't apply here, don't think that you're any better. So needless to say, it was a terrible flop because nobody wanted to hear this in Britain in 1814. But she has this extraordinary scene where her heroine, Juliet, the wanderer, who is trying to escape from the clammy clutches of... Uh, her guardian, supposedly her guardian, is obviously very predatory. And they arrive at Stonehenge as tourists by this stage were arriving. And it had become a thing that in order to have the surprise arrival at Stonehenge, not to see it from too far away, but to get the full picturesque and sublime effect, you would go with your carriage blinds down and then as you arrived, the blinds would all be let up and oh, everyone would good. go, aha! Mm. Um, but of course, if you were in a carriage with somebody who felt rather uneasy about this, it was an extremely uncomfortable experience. But, um, but Juliet at Stonehenge, I think, I don't know, you would know more than me, but I think it's the first really female scene, certainly written by a woman, and the first time that the stones, she experiencing experiences them in a kind of motherly way. They mm. are comforting to her. And that sense of of deep, deep time just embraces her. Yes, that's interesting. Uh, uh, because we should say that, that more positive, I'd say, or that, that more sympathetic kind of representation of the stones is actually something that you can glimpse in Blake just about, isn't it? So we've talked about the um, rather monstrous kind of illustration that you get halfway through, but the very, very last page of of the poem or of the text is, is just a picture of a kind of heroic version of Lost, the poet figure. His work done, as it were, he's triumphant. Jerusalem has been established. But interestingly, in the background of that picture, you can see 
Blake has drawn a kind of idealized version of a, of a complete Stonehenge. So, as it were, the ruin of the Stone of, of, of Stonehenge and, and all its brutality is visually. I mean, he doesn't refer to it in the text, but is visually kind of restored and redeemed. And that more kind of redemptive, kind of health-giving um, Stonehenge, I guess, is is in tune, isn't it, with what you were saying about Bernie's um, experience there? Yes, uh, the consolations of time, and indeed. The, the lessons of time, which can be benign. It's not, I mean, it's really, yes, you're saying Blake is doing what Wordsworth does at the end, or later on in his explorations of Stonehenge, the, the kind of, the horror wears off. And what remains is this extraordinary witness to human experience over centuries and millennia. Yes, and human invention. I think. I mean, that's part of the, part of what Blake is admiring in it. I think it's just this extraordinary capacity to yes. to create, and which takes us all the way back to Inigo Jones and how did they move those great big rocks? Yes. Which is a question that one still wonders about at Stonehenge. Um, and I think the poems are all very visual, but we shouldn't forget that there were quite a lot of people painting and drawing Stonehenge, and the way that. It's always depicted in romantic art. It changes a lot with Victorians. But in romantic art, you never get a sort of a nice day at Stonehenge. <laughs> it's always, uh, there's always an electric storm or terrible clouds or some very, very dramatic weather feature. And uh, it's also, of course, the, if the poets aren't bothered about measurements, the artists really don't care. They just move everything round to where it looks best, as artists should do. But, but I mean, much Turner's been hugely criticised by archaeologists, who it seems to me are slightly missing the point of what Turner was doing at Stonehenge. Yes, absolutely. It's an extraordinary image, isn't it? And if people don't know what Ruskin. Turner's great champion says about it in his book Modern Painters. Uh, I would, you know, recommend again getting online and looking up the passage. He says that the Stonehenge is perhaps the standard of storm drawing. He don't, you know, as a, uh, the absolute benchmark from now on about how you represent a storm in in visual uh, in visual terms. And it is an extraordinary, infernal um, kind of scene, isn't it? The overwhelming powers, as Ruskin, the gigantic proportions and spaces of its cloud forms, the tremendous qualities of lurid and sulfurous colours which are gained in them. Um, it's, a, it's a vision of kind of chaos, isn't it, really? Well, chaos and danger. Yeah. Because the shepherd is dead. Yeah. And... Also, because one has to remember that Turner was doing a watercolour as a preparatory stage to an engraving, which to us is probably much less interesting, the engraving. But the watercolour is astonishing. And it dramatises really um, the many thousand words of Wordsworth, the sort of the coincidence of subjective and objective experience, the world, the external world of nature and the elements the creation of humankind and what happens when they come into collision, this cataclysmic experience, which can kill you, but is also what makes experience valuable. And very different, you would say, I think, to, to the constable, the famous constable image. Yes. Well, as a constable who was friends with various antiquaries and probably well acquainted with all the arguments and things, but wasn't really interested in that. I mean, the, the curious thing about Constable, really, in the context of everyone we've been talking about, is that he was a very explicitly a Tory. He was a landowner. He was in no way a radical. He was very upset by a lot of the changes that were taking place in Britain. We've now moved on to 
the 1830s, the power of the church being limited, the power of land being limited. So he was he was quite um, perplexed by the future of civilization, and yet he gives. I mean, his Stonehenge watercolor was the biggest one he ever did, and he gives it this extraordinary double rainbow, which is the greatest. He says, you know, it's the most kind of complex. It's the biggest thing the sky does, <laughs> and he's put it there at Stonehenge. How do you interpret that? Is it a symbol of hope? Is it like, you know, what Noah sees in the ark? Well, I mean, the rainbow is traditionally a symbol of hope, and he puts it on the eve of the vote on the Great Reform Act. He was painting uh, Salisbury Cathedral with a rainbow over it, the church under a stormy sky, but maybe it'll be all right, I suppose would be a very banal way of describing the amazing effect of that painting. But I think... I mean, the interesting thing about that watercolour is that he worked on it for a long time. That's not so surprising. But that the last things he put into it were the rainbows and the hair in the grass. And these very fleeting things set in the context of this monumentality. I think Constable is thinking of... He's thinking about time, the passage of time, that all of this too will pass. So I don't know whether it's about hope or whether it's more just to say, remember your place in time. Well, of course, in a way, perhaps the death of Romanticism at Stonehenge comes with another death. And as we've been saying, I mean, on the whole, women at Stonehenge, with the exception of Fanny Burney's Wanderer, who finds it comforting, nothing very good happens to women at Stonehenge. And the worst fate of all is the fate that overtakes um, Thomas Hardy's Tess. Yes, yeah, so this is the other end of the century now, 1891, the novel is published, and it has a, a, a wonderful scene almost at the very end of the novel where um, uh, Tess and Angel Clare are, are wandering. Uh, Tess is guilty of a murder, and she knows uh, that she doesn't have much time uh, free. The police are in pursuit, um, and she's em- embracing her doom with uh, a, t- a tremendous um, sort of placidity of spirit, really. And then entirely by chance, again, it's like Wordsworth, it's a chance encounter. Um, they find themselves at Stonehenge. Uh, it is Stonehenge, said Claire. Tess answers, the heathen temple, you mean. Yes, older than the centuries, older than the d'Urbervilles. Well, what shall we do, darling? We may find shelter further on. But Tess, really tired by this time, flung herself upon an oblong slab that lay close at hand and was sheltered from the wind by a pillar. She can't go any further. She's too exhausted. Um, He, teasingly, had called her a heathen when he first came to know her. So there's a kind of strange uh, 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 sort of fitting quality for this to be uh, the scene of her her last kind of um, time with him. Uh, And I suppose what Hardy's point is a little bit like Blake's point in Jerusalem. That is to say, this is a place where women are sacrificed because it is an emblem for a a wider um, England where women like Tess are sacrificed, I suppose we might say now, on the altar of patriarchy. Hardy also does a very clever thing because he's got this problem. It's very difficult to just sort of find suddenly that you're in Stonehenge. Yes. I mean, you can. This was the problem for the tour, tour guides in the 18th century. But he has a very heavy mist on Salisbury Plain, 
And so the, the extraordinary thing is that they hear the stones yes. before they see them. And it is, it is a real meteorological phenomenon. You can sometimes hear the wind among the stones. So that is the most brilliant scenic effect. Um, and then she sleeps on the stones. And again, very dramatically, the police arrive and Angel Clare tells them to, to wait until she wakes up. And I have to say, as someone who finds Hardy a sadistic writer mm. at that point, I just think you, you really didn't need to do that to us. <laughs> um, that really is too much. I mean, it's the most appalling and bitter end. And also in Hardy's mind, I think it is the death of a kind of romanticism because, um, yes, she she represents women, in general, but the D'Urbervilles are the last of this declining line and Hardy's horror at what Darwin has uncovered about what it means to be human, that um, species come and species go. Uh, this wasn't something that worried Darwin, who came to Stonehenge to and used it to illustrate his own theory about earthworms. Um, but to Hardy, who felt that what it meant was that it was a godless universe in which human uh, understanding had evolved to a point where human physical existence could never be anything other than tragic. So that is, and that is all left with the, in my case, horrified reader at, at, at Stonehenge. Um, the Victorians, of course, we've talked about the antiquaries and we've talked about the artists. With the Victorians, they did a lot of much more sense. They went for picnics rather than um, visions and nervous breakdowns. And they did a lot of very sensible measuring. Of course, they photographed it for the first time. Um, and they were able to produce many, many more facts about Stonehenge, all of them to some extent contested still, but many more facts than any previous age had had. After that um, came another influx of theories, visions, and uh, more or less lunatic theories. And next time, um, we'll be talking about those. Thank you, Seamus, um, not least for all that light you've cast on, on Blake. And our producer will not let me let you go without saying something about your close reading series with Mark Ford. Yes, we're in the in the thick of our third series of close readings called The Long and Short, which is about long poems and short stories written from about 1850 to the present day. Uh, we've looked at uh, writers like Whitman and James, uh, Catherine Mansfield, um, and we have uh, lots of really good things in the pipeline, um, D.H. Lawrence and uh, James Joyce and, and, and lots of other fantastic writers. Uh, and people can sign up to listen to the entire series. And there is a link in the description to this episode. And for those who want to know more about Stonehenge, my own book, Stonehenge, is available in paperback. It was the first book on the subject ever to be written by a woman. And there's a link to it in the description of this programme.